rather than having made prudent life choices all along, most of us tend to only seek healthful solutions once we've had a scare in the form of a diagnosis or event. This is HealthScape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. In this program, we'll show you the techniques, innovations, and holistic ideas that you can use to put yourself on the path to better health. Now, here is Dr. Trevor Campbell. Hello, welcome to HealthScape. Today's topic is resilience and positive transformation. Sweet are the uses of adversity, wrote Shakespeare centuries ago, implying that there could ultimately be unexpected gains in misfortune, as a significant setback can change one's perceptions and behaviors for the better. Sounds good so far. But what does one do when overwhelming calamity or disaster strikes suddenly and repeatedly? The mind is usually far too numb to intuit an escape hatch or thrash a way through the challenges. There are simply no guides nor manuals that are overly helpful in these events. Fortunately, it appears that somehow some folks manage to find a way to fast track and ramp up their resilience and agility, and they manage to weather the storm. Our guest today, Denise Wozniak, is exactly such a person. Her personal story and learned experience make her keynote speeches powerful catalysts for change. Certified by the University of Pennsylvania in positive psychology and resilience, Denise is a TEDx speaker and a certified speaking coach. She's also the recipient of the Queen Elizabeth II Gold and Diamond Jubilee Medals for her international advocacy work on behalf of children with HIV AIDS. Denise, I am so very pleased to welcome you to HealthScape. Thank, thank you, Trevor. You it's a oh, thank no. you, Trevor. It's a pleasure to be here. Right, uh, Denise, what is resilience, and can it be learned? Well, resilience comes in different forms, but yes, resilience can be learned. A lot of people think of resilience by certain words. Uh, some people might think of it as bouncing back from a situation. Uh, mm -hmm. Other people might think of it as adapting to a situation. But what people often miss is that you can actually grow from a difficult situation. Right, well, as, as uh, Shakespeare suggested, um, it's, it's, I'm sure it's hard to to keep your mind on that in the minute or in the actual period that you're going through the hardship, but you do see it after a while, clearly. So the, um, the positive side, the transformation. Yeah. Now, your own life has been trauma heavy. Let's leave it at, at that, to say the least. Could you please tell us what exactly happened? Yes, well, I think, Maybe what I'd do is go back to my childhood. I grew yes. up in England, as you can maybe tell from my accent. Some people can't, but I grew up in England. And I was lucky enough to live in a middle-class home. My father was a teacher, and my mother stayed at home. My parents had a very bad, well, very poor relationship. And my father had multiple affairs on my mother. 
which I actually found out about when I was a child and didn't tell my mother about. And as well as that, I witnessed them having terrible fights at home, usually verbal, but quite often physical as well, my, when my father would hit my mother. And we had to make excuses for that afterwards when I went to school. If somebody saw my mother, they'd ask questions. So that was pretty traumatic. And when right. I was when I was 17 years old, my mother finally found multiple photographs of my father with another woman in our house. And that, that ended up being a reason for divorce. But unfortunately, my father wouldn't move out of the house for two years. So I was in the house with my father and my mother told me never to speak to him again. That was very difficult as a 17-year-old. But time went on and my mother eventually moved back to Canada where her family lived. And shortly after that, I moved to Canada as well. When I was, that was when I was 21. When I was 29 years old, I was single at that time. And unfortunately, I met the wrong guy at the wrong time. I didn't know that at the time. Afterwards, I did meet a nice guy and we were together for four or five years. Eventually, I was in a job at a school district and I got laid off with 30 other employees. A week later, my daughter was extremely sick and taken to BC Children's Hospital. They did some tests on her to find out what was causing the illness. And a long story short, they found that the diagnosis was AIDS. And they they phoned me and I found out at that time that my daughter, who was only six months old, had AIDS. And we, my husband and I were asked to come into the hospital to get tested the next day. And they said they weren't totally sure that my daughter Katie had AIDS, but they had to do a retest on her and they tested us too. And in those days, you had to wait a week for the results. And right. in a week's time, I found out that my daughter had AIDS. I had HIV, which was not as severe as AIDS. And my husband was not infected. So we had never, I had never passed it on to him. She was infected during the womb, in the womb. And I finally traced it back to four or five years earlier when I was in a relationship. After that, we were told that Katie might live two years because she had been infected in the womb. And in fact, she died at home three months later. Oh. Yeah, that's that's rough, Denise. Wow, that's a lot to to handle. That. So, um, what? I mean, this is difficult to bring up. But what? What sort of were your initial reactions? Was it wanting to? I mean, these would all be natural. Just wanting to run away, not knowing where to go, or or just being numb or can you elaborate on that yes well you know the interesting thing is that it was in 1994 and i don't know if you can remember back to 1994 but it was quite a while ago when things were happening like oj going down the freeway and 
And uh, Vancouver was in the Stanley Cup. So a lot of things were going on in 1994. And one of those things was Philadelphia was at the movies. Right. It was, there was a lot of stigma around yes, HIV yes. in 1994. It was. And we were told by a doctor, by actually the HIV specialist, be very careful who you tell because they may not have the reaction you think they will. Based on that, we decided not to tell anybody, not even my parents. And eventually we did tell my husband's parents, but I didn't tell my parents for two years. So when Katie died, we told people that she died of pneumonia. We didn't actually tell them what she died of, and they had no idea that I had the same illness. Mm -hmm. uh, that made it very difficult because you want support at that time. It's like, right. let's say you, you know, you've just seen the World Trade Towers come down and, you know, somebody tells you, don't tell anyone. It's pretty hard not to tell someone. Yeah, yeah. Not you sure. know, when you've had such a catastrophic thing happen. And so we were very, very afraid of what the reaction would be from our friends. Would they not want to know us anymore? and things like that. So that was the situation. And because of that, because I didn't get help, I got very suicidal after the event. At first, I was very good with coping with it. I went into action, was able to really look after Katie well. And after the event, it was like a huge letdown period for me where I became suicidal. And I also started to get incredibly bad nightmares right and that was uh i was finally diagnosed with ptsd mm -hmm. post-traumatic stress disorder yeah gee now I, I do recall um those times because i had just qualified as a physician we had heard nothing of hiv or aids at university and suddenly this was upon us and i do remember uh reading it well hearing you know uh during my job and so forth that some people even the stigma was so great they even went to collect their coffee cups at their place of work I don't know if you can recall that it was like absolute uh, panic oh, this unknown illness at the time um, yes I, I can tell you that before I had HIV I was working in human resources uh, at an accounting firm and one of the people in our accounting firm because I was in human resources, I knew that he had HIV. And he, on his final day at work, he started passing around a drink and saying, hey, try this. It's really good. We were at a restaurant. And I thought, oh, my gosh, he's passing around his drink and he's got HIV. So I am guilty as charged, you know, oh, like God. I was part of the stigma. I know what it's like to be afraid and, and have that phobia that you really haven't researched something, but you think you know all about yeah, it. Yeah, it's yes. that initial fear, right? Yes. Um, yeah, no, I can imagine those because it was a while before there were life-saving drugs that really absolutely were generally available. Now, right. of course, uh, the research shows that multiple incidents or repeated incidents can cause uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, do you feel that this applied to you with what went on in your childhood? Did you somehow feel, get those feelings of things being out of control that you linked perhaps to that? Or 
Well, you know, I, I do believe just witnessing my father hurting my mother was a turning point for me as far as um, the fear of what could happen. And I, I mean, for a child, that's very difficult to witness, um, yes. especially when you're keeping it a secret. You're not telling anybody. Right, right. Uh, you, I wouldn't have even told, oh, I would never have told a doctor in those days of what was going on with my parents. Oh, and and even on one occasion, I can remember, I we were, you know, in the old days, we used to watch slideshows at people's houses. That's really going to date me. But, yeah. you know, we I used remember to go, that. Do you? Yeah, yeah. We used to oh, go yeah. to people's houses and watch their trip to Russia. And we were all bored to tears, you know, watching this trip. But but I, I looked over to my dad who was watching it. And the, there was a lady sitting next to him on the floor. He was on the sofa. She was on the floor. And I saw him reach his hand and hold her hand in the dark over that sofa. And I realized suddenly that he was having an affair with her. And that kind of thing, and where, you, where as a child, you can't tell anybody, not even your mother, who you're used to telling your mother things, it's yes. extremely distressing. Right. How, how old were you at that time when you? Uh, I would say that, that I was. Yeah, I'd say I was ten. Yeah, no, that's that's very difficult because, you know, you you want one once wants parents to get on, and any division you want to avoid, you, you just not experienced enough to be able to even think how you would navigate that. So it is very very hard on a child. I remember at the time after the afterwards when we were going home, my dad said to me, "Why were you so quiet tonight?" And I I just shook my shoulders, and he said, "Don't be like that when you go to somebody's house." And it just was very upsetting for me. Mm -hmm. But he said that to me, you know. So you had um, the nightmares of PTSD. Oh yeah. What did you did you have other symptoms as well? Well, I think it's important to understand the nightmares because when I was having the nightmares, it wasn't simply a nightmare, which is bad enough. You know, mm. a lot of the nightmares I had were of tornadoes coming towards me or they were somebody was attacking me, attacking a place I was, and it was an army attacking me. And I really felt those nightmares I was having, the thing attacking me was the HIV the virus and I was and I in all the dreams I had other people were getting killed but I wasn't but then it went on from that to me waking up in the morning or actually in the middle of the night I should say and I would see spiders running up the covers towards me or I'd mm -hmm. see rats running across the top of a curtain and I would say to my husband quick turn on the light and then I was just shocked that there was nothing there. So I was actually awake seeing those things. And I would even tell myself, this must be a dream when I was looking at them. So it's a waking nightmare was a very, very bad thing for me. And I suppose you had the flashbacks as well of where you actually... Actually, you know, I didn't have many flashbacks, mm -hmm. Trevor. There are some things you get, some things you don't. I didn't actually have the flashbacks, but I definitely had triggers. So, um, for example, a trigger for me was 
At the Oklahoma bombing, after that bombing, there was a firefighter carrying a child. That was a big trigger for me, seeing oh, really? that child. It, it really reminded me of holding my daughter on the last day she was alive. So yeah. that would be a trigger. Yeah. yeah. You see, the problem is our brain is so adept at um, making associations. I mean, after all, that's how we learn that yes. the net gets cast like a gill net far and wide. And things that are completely different contexts can be scooped up and and frighten as much as the actual initial incident, right? Absolutely. So, uh, the one I just got to tell you, one of the worst ones for me was a movie called The House of Sand and Fog. And I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. It's a great, great movie. But at the end, um, a man who loves his son, the son, oh, spoiler alert, but anyway, the son... Uh, is actually gets killed and the father feels very guilty for it. At the end of that movie, I almost had a total breakdown from is watching that, that movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, it, I, I'm not familiar with that one, but it's, sometimes it's just, it's it's not just the events in the movie. It's a kind of the ambiance, the, the, um, the atmosphere of the movie. Yes. Or one of the actors behaving in a way that's similar that, you know, once it hits that ignition point, then you have a yes. full-blown thing, right? Yes. Yeah, no, that's a lot to deal with. So those periods, I, I know from, from patients that um, they say to me, you know, they have this, what some people call it the dark night of the soul, but in situations like this, it's sometimes the dark month or <laughs> weeks of the soul uh, or longer, right? What what did you, what did you feel um, when you when you sensed you really couldn't continue? Like just not to run away, but to I can't do this anymore. It's not working. What did you, what did you feel, and what did you say to yourself? And I don't mean verbally necessarily, but what did you think to reassure yourself or soothe your uh, troubled mind, kind of thing? Well, at the time, there wasn't a lot I could say, actually. I, I just was so deep down in it. Um, but I I believe in the end, it was becoming aware of my thoughts. And another part was I was listening. It helped me a lot. This was I was listening one day in the car to Eckhart Tolle. And he mm -hmm. was usually I found it very hard to listen to him at the beginning because I would fall asleep listening to him. But finally I decided I'd drive a car listening to him and hopefully not fall asleep. But he was talking about how we become our illnesses and how sometimes it's an easy to track to fall into. And I realized at that point that I was totally becoming my illness. I was that woman with HIV, even in speaking right. out about it i was i was looked on as there's that woman with hiv and i thought i'm not that woman i am i'm the person i was before i got this mm -hmm. illness i i've got lots of qualities that for some somehow have got drowned in this and when you start to become aware of your thoughts and how you are labeling yourself and actually, I did notice I was starting to stigmatize myself in the end. Gee. And that was an awakening for me. It really was. It was an awakening that 
I realized I had this other part of me. The mm-hmm. first part is what you verbalize. The second part is what you think. But there's another part of you that becomes aware of what you think. And when I reached that part, that became very interesting for me. I became much more aware of what I was doing to, if you like, to harm myself by keeping myself in that state. Yeah, no, well, and of course, this this is common as well, because when you are not communicating about something or you feel you cannot talk about it, as you did in this case, and not that uh, was not at all unjustified, of course. Um, more time's going to be spent ruminating, dwelling on and on and on. And we know from the studies on depression and so forth that rumination is eventually becomes very negative. And I mentioned that with the chronic pain um, patients uh, when I see them, that your your narrative sometimes there's so many things that are wrong that you kind of condense a version for family and friends because they're interested. But unfortunately, that becomes your mantra in your own head as well. And in the end, you actually, people close to you and you yourself are acting on a script that's not you. It's a historical thing that was useful to tell the physicians, but it now becomes, um, it's almost becomes a story that you grow into as well. So it works two ways. Absolutely. And you know what what I I think was that because I was constantly hiding it from people, it meant even in my off time of thinking about it, I was hiding it. And that was a very, that was very worrying for me because I, I couldn't get away from it at all. I actually, one of the things I did in the end that helped me a lot, and I would recommend this to a lot of people, is I finally decided to act on it as far as I founded a society for children who had HIV in British Columbia. And that helped me a lot because I had a bigger purpose then. I I was doing something outside of me. Absolutely. And of course, Denise, that is the secret. If you can get off the focus to get back to the narrative story, there's that famous saying, uh, Mark, um, uh, um, you know, character is destiny. Yes. But you don't want your narrative to become your destiny because you're so focused on it. And it's often where you muster the ability to you did it through helping, which is an excellent way, but have the courage and the strength to do that, that your focus moves completely and you free yourself from this mental trap. Yes, and you know, it can be very difficult to free yourself. I was thinking about this the other day. It can be very difficult to free yourself when you're taking a lot of pills. So every time you take those pills, it's a reminder And back in the day, of course, when they first came out with the pills, which was amazing that they did. But at that time, I was taking 23 pills a day. So I was taking pills in the morning, pills at lunchtime, pills in the evening, and hiding those pills from people so that they couldn't see them. Uh, So every time you took those pills, it's a reminder and it's very difficult. No, for sure, for sure. Um, but good for you, you know, and, and also, um, again, we see that in chronic illness and um, chronic pain, for example, p- 
people often make a huge shift if they can do even some volunteer work. And it's really because it's a message to your brain that you're not in such bad shape. You can still help other people, but it's also taking that focus of the very sad tale. Well, not tale, this very sad story that you you find yourself immersed in. It's hard. It's hard. I mean, you can't forget it. So having a diversion that's good for everybody is is, is wonderful that you, you you did that when you were at a bad stage. Now, the loss of your child must have, one assumes, taken a huge toll on your marriage. Can you speak more about that, if you would? Yes. Well, it did take a huge toll. At first, I was... It was. It's difficult to describe exactly what a toll it took. At first, we were together and we were fighting as a unit. As time went on, it became worse and worse. I got help from a psychiatrist. My husband didn't, and he started to abuse alcohol. Oh, and in the end, after that, he abused me, so physically and verbally. Now, that didn't make my PTSD TD worse, I've got to say, it it was it totally separate. No, it didn't. It, it it was what it was. If in fact, if anything, I think it made me stronger that eventually yeah. I decided to leave. Oh yeah, take action, right? That's a big mm-hmm. one. So it was it was tough. Do you think it was just too much for him to handle and alcohol was a kind of temporary way out or? I think uh, that actually he'd always had it in his personality. I think I became more confident and the drinking didn't help, that's for sure. But um, I think that it came to a head finally and we just had different interests and we're going different ways. Yeah, and that that happens because after something like this, people, even death in the family, uh, I mean, any death of, of children, People change in different ways, and that's often the cause for us for a breakup. Um, Denise, sorry, we have to take uh, some time for a commercial break. Um, I'm your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell on Healthscape, speaking with Denise Wozniak on resilience and transformation. Don't go away, please. Are you satisfied with your chronic pain treatment? Chronic pain experts agree that recovery can only occur when the psychological and social issues which help trigger and drive the chronic pain are treated along with the other problems. Medications, injection therapy, and a range of physical therapies may provide temporary relief of symptoms, but they don't actually address the root causes that drive the chronic pain. I'm Dr. Trevor Campbell, a chronic pain consultant and author of The Language of Pain, a self-help book for those struggling with chronic pain. Add this type of therapy to your existing treatment plan and experience the difference. Get your copy of my book, The Language of Pain, on Amazon. And for further direction, there's also the Language of Pain online course available on my website, www.trevorcampbellmd.com. Act now to take back your life. You are listening to Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. If you have a question or comment about the show, please send an email to host at trevorcampbellmd.com. Now back to the show. 
This is your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell on Healthscape, speaking to Denise Wozniak. Denise, how has this whole chain of events uh, changed you now that you have survived it? Mm. Well, I would say the number one thing is that I'm extremely optimistic now and extremely well, and the second part would be I'm extremely grateful for my life. I'd say those are the two parts that have been a big change in me. I feel that I've got my confidence back. Mm-hmm. I I notice what's going on in the world much more and feel that I can see the divisions that are happening and I'm much more aware of the way I think about the divisions that are happening. So sort of clear vision, uh, clarity of thinking after all the turmoil, it's you've, you've bounced back really, right? Well, I've got to say that I, I did. I, I finally got a lot more confidence Mm -hmm. that helped. I, I found that I thought, you know, I'm not a bad person because of this. It's not my fault. I feel like it was kind of like as if I'd been backing up my car in my driveway and somebody had said, be careful, there's no kids behind you whenever you do that. And sure enough, I ran into a kid. Then that was, that's how I feel about the whole thing. I, I feel like I'm on a journey and there are lots of ups and downs on, on journeys, you know, that nothing's a smooth ride, yeah, you know. Yeah. So that's how I feel about that. I'm very happy person in that I'm I'm the kind of person who loves to joke. I've got a wicked British sense of humor, which is not always good for people, but uh I I and now I've eventually become very confident speaker. And I, I speak quite a lot i not about my illness I took a break from that I used to speak about that a lot and then I realized you know I am getting trapped in this person who's got HIV I have to have a message for the audience that will help them they don't want to hear some sob story from me so uh I mean you know it's interesting to me maybe but it's not interesting it's not going to help them so I have to look at ways of what what's happened to me and how can it help others? Well, certainly the resilience is a is a great um, topic because as we know, it's been a rough two years. I think we can all agree on this, and for very obvious reasons, you know, the COVID and global unrest and financial instability, the threat of an expanded war, people are you know throwing around. We all need resilience. Do you think that? In your society, the area you live, that is it your impression that we are generally resilient enough? I think that would depend on the person who you're talking yeah, to. I think it's yeah, I think it depends on their background. Right. But but as a as a community or a society or a town, do you do you get the impression? I guess you know. Well, I've got to be honest and say no. I don't think we're resilient en- enough. So, right. having been yeah. through what you've been through, right? Yes. Um, I, I wanted to ask you earlier on. Actually, when did you 
start visualizing a future for yourself again? At what point or what was the inciting incident or period that actually made you see, you know what, as much as I hate the situation, I am going to be in a better place? You know, believe it or not, that probably didn't happen until around about 2013. That's how long it took me to be to. And the reason I know that is I finally started thinking about a pension. (laughs) And so to me, I thought, that's interesting that I'm starting to think of the future. Whereas before I had purposely blocked that from my mind, I did not want to, it took my watch off. I didn't want a watch on. I didn't even want to plan for the future. Everything about the future scared me because I had once before looked to the future when I had a daughter and was imagining her going to classes for ballet or maybe going to see her Christmas concert and then everything changed on a dime and so I prohibited myself from looking to the future but then I was lucky enough to meet a man at a wedding who was not HIV positive and I he asked if he could get to know me and I said no I don't think that's a good idea it's me and it's not you and he said oh all the women say that And I said, no, really, in this case, it's me. It's not you. So the next day he Facebooked me and said, you know, I'd still really like to get to know you. Can we just be friends? And I said, yeah, but there's something you got to know about me. And he said, oh, I know that already. So I said, well, what do you know? And he said, well, I know you're HIV positive. So I said, well, how do you know that? He said, well, I Googled you. (laughs) So anyway, we got to know each other. And he said, I've learned a lot about HIV. I really like you and I'd like to get to know you better. And now we've been married for eight years. So good on you. Yeah, good on him too. The two of you, I mean. Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, that just shows you. Um, So back to the... The, the, how resilient societies, uh, communities mm, are. Yeah. Uh, you felt not resilient enough. I feel that too. Mm-hmm. And I think in my situation, it's partly because, uh, you know, you've done it for quite a few decades, uh, uh, been around a while, and I've never seen so many watch out for what, you know, the caveats, um, things that seem to be you know, coming to a head, for want of a better word, you know, a, a cluster of crises. So what do you think needs to be done now about that? If anything, just sort of cope as one needs to, or what are your feelings? Personally, I think we really need to examine the conversations we're having with people and know when to step back and know when to, when you really don't know about something, be careful of having a position on it. So uh, yes. do a bit of research, be open-minded. I I find that one of the biggest problems I can see right now, is, of course, is social media and how that provokes you into a a hate frame of mind. Mm. I, I feel that I'm I've got to say I'm a bit like you, Trevor, and that I'm not old enough to remember World War II, but I've heard the stories from my father. 
And my father was in the RAF. He met my mother during the war. And he had, I was just reading the other day in his flight log book about how he wasn't due to go out on one particular night. And that night, the other crew got killed. Yeah. And, you know, when you read things like that and yeah. you know the hardships they've been through, for yeah. myself, I mean, I'm, I know that there are people who are incredibly short of medication in different parts of the world. I mean, you just look at Ukraine and you understand what's going on. And I think sometimes you got to get a bit of perspective. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. and when, when you get perspective on what your situation is and how lucky you are, that can change everything. Right, right. And then your point about, uh, you know, when it comes to social media, I mean, social media, it's again, how much one uses, how much of the day you spend on it and how you use it, like anything in life. But uh, I, I reckon if there's an argument is about to start and it looks to you like primarily the other person's trying to vent or just turn you to their side of the argument, it's probably not worthwhile this, uh, continuing it, especially if it's something abstract about some celebrity or something, you know, not abstract. I mean, it, it could be real, but the point is something that's not really central to your life. And we tend to pounce too often. You know, the, what I call the pounce nick phenomenon, everything that irritates pounce. Not a good idea for your health. and uh... It's very hard not to, you know. I mean, we have, I mean, I'm on Twitter. I see lots on Twitter. That, that right. is something you could, a rabbit hole you can go down. I call it the rabbit hole of the internet. You can go down that rabbit hole, but you have to really be aware and say, you know, I just need to step back. Maybe I need to go and get a coffee. Maybe I need to go into another room before I reply to this that I've seen. And then, like I said, I, I always think, how much do I know about this situation? But, right. but locally, we have Facebook groups, community sites. And I've actually taken myself off some of those sites because I just feel they're not healthy for me. They're mm -hmm. not um, sites that are good for me. And I, I feel that as parents, parents need to be role models for their children. And if you are getting involved in getting angry at people, what do children learn from that? Right. I, I right. think it's, I think it's uh, something, again, it's really being, being very aware of your thinking. Well, like the social media platform you talk about, whether your characters are very limited. And with yes. people trying to either often, not always, but trying to show off or self-aggrandize, um, the main function isn't the, the, the dispensing of information. Uh, and, you know, the message is distorted. It's anything but clear and can be taken in many different ways. And then what amazes me, it, it's met with dismay that it's caused all this trouble. But yeah. the intention isn't there. It's to do other things, to show one's superiority or look how clever I am and limit the number of characters you can use. So it's kind of a formula, I think, for 
for um, this kind of thing happening. Personally. Well, I got to tell you, Trevor, there's one thing I do um, on Twitter, and that is there's a person I follow all the time. And his name is David Chilton. He used to be one of the dragons on the Dragon's Den. And he has very funny little little things he puts out there about him and his father. And so I often purposely look him up okay. to see what he's put out recently. And so I think if you're very selective in who right. you follow and, and being like, for instance, there's a lot being said right now about um, American politics, a huge amount still. And even though Donald Trump is not on Twitter anymore, uh, there's still the to and fro of American politics. Mm -hmm. And believe me, I love politics. I love following politics. So I have to be very careful at a point, like even today they're talking about the abortion situation, or, or recently they have been, they've been talking about it for years. But in any case, um, whatever they're talking about at the time, I really have to be careful of getting engaged in it. Because I feel that, to a point, I mean, if I know about it, I'm going to get engaged in it. But right. if I don't know anything about it, it's best that I step back. Yeah, no, no, definitely for one's own sanity sometimes. Mm -hmm. And it also can mop up a lot of time. So, Denise, what are your thoughts about your own future now? What is the feel you have Um well, that's kind of funny, Trevor, because my husband, when I first met him, he said to me, you know, I feel like we're in the autumn of our lives. And I said, well, I'm not. I'm in summer. <laughs> so he he was telling me that, you know, this is kind of the wrap up period. Well, I don't feel it's a wrap up period for me. I feel mm -hmm. like it's my rebirth almost. So for me, I've I look on great things in the future. I, I feel like I want to share with people resilience, what it's, and especially the change that's come from resilience and, and what we can actually do to, uh, to have optimism and how to hire people who are optimistic. There's lots of, there's a big road you can go down to on that. I haven't got a bucket list. I feel like I've been very fortunate in this life and done a lot of things that people would put on their bucket list. I, I just feel that I'm living day to day, taking every day as it comes. I'm on a journey. I just feel I want, I'm a big helper. I like helping people. I, when I was a little girl, I wanted to be a teacher. And one time, jeepers, when I was like five years old, I wanted to be a fairy to grant people wishes. So I just love helping people. And for me, that's what my future is going to be. I definitely am not going to stop at 65. I feel like 65 used to be an age that was decided upon because people used to die around 65. Now we live a lot longer than that. And I'm going to try and I still want to work on causes that are bigger than myself. Put it like that. Well, I, I can, I could venture. I mean, very easily that that's been a great part of your healing, mm. and it's the test that you have recovered as far as you. Well, I won't say as far as you can't. Why put a lid on it as what as far as you can? But the fact that you see your years as summer, yeah. as summer years, is is basically a testimony that you've come to a a, a, um, a placid and a place of gratitude. 
Yes, I think it's going to be a very short autumn and then into winter. <laughs> but I, I definitely am not going to have a long fall period. <laughs> well, rather more time in summer, right? Yes. And what advice do you have uh, for anyone who's currently feeling like this is too much, I'm overwhelmed, I, I can't really handle it realistically? They're not, would, they're not worked up. Yeah. yeah. Trev, I would say, um, number one, I'm definitely not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I would talk with their doctor. They should talk with their doctor about it for sure. Yes. Um, if they have a mentor, that can be very helpful too. If you have somebody you consider a mentor, then talk to them. Even if you have friends who you, who you trust oh. and they're going to be confidential about your situation, talk to them. And for me personally, do a lot of research on any illness. Uh, do any re research on how you can get help. There's lots of societies out there mm. who can help you. So Denise, and listen to podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Denise, that that's surely is sound and sage advice. But is there any insight that you would like to leave with them? Um, just a saying or a quote from someone. That's more what I had in mind. Um, I think here's what I'd, I'd say is if you are suicidal, try to think of this as a journey and not a destiny. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and speak to someone urgently. But, you know, I, I would just, as we were talking now, I remember there was a film from way back when, The Poseidon Adventure. Mm. And it's that, that song, there's got to be a morning after. And if we think back on our own lives, if we've been around a few decades, we know that there were times that they were pretty tough and there was, there was always a morning after. And that's kind of in a, it's not a game changer, but it's something to hold on to as well, I suppose, right? I think it is. It's very difficult when you're in the situation to even imagine it. And sometimes you feel that you are, uh, that you are less of a burden to people if you get rid of yourself. I think that, unfortunately, that's stuck thinking. And it's only when you hear from other people sometimes that you realize that you're not a burden. But I would say to uh, anybody that there is a morning after and, and that there is resilience. And it's amazing. Anything that you're going through now, believe it or not, will make you stronger in the future. Yeah, I can easily do that for sure. Yeah. But in the meantime, speak to a professional too. Yeah. Yes. Okay, well, um, it was lovely having you, um, uh, Denise. Thank you so very much. Uh, wish you well and many, many more summer years. <laughs> and I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you, Trevor. Okay. Goodbye. This is uh, your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell from Healthscape, signing off. Thank you for tuning in to Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. We hope you'll join us again next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time or listen anytime on demand on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a healthy week.